this, uh, this week has been a, um, kind of a, uh, a tough week for me. Um, not because, um, you know, life things or uh, situations or anything. Um, it's a tough week because it's a tough passage. <laughs> um, we're going to go to John 8, 31 through 59. And um, John 8, 31 through 59. And this is a very hard passage for a young preacher to preach. And, uh, and they gave it to me. <laughs> and uh, no, in, in, in seriousness, um, it's very hard. And it's, it's, it's hard because, not because there's some theological question that you have to wade through with much thought and, and research. It doesn't force you into the field of academia. It's not like it's hard language. The Greek isn't hard. It, it's not like it, it, it's hard to apply even to your life. It's very clear. But that's the hard part about it. The hard part about it is very clear. It's very poignant, it's very specific, and it's very convicting. In fact, in this passage, there are claims of blasphemy. People are called demons. People are called sons of the devil. It's a passage that is very hard to preach, very hard. And my fear is that what you will see when I try to preach this text, is you will see a young, arrogant pastor. And I can't tell you the amount of time I've prayed and asked for counsel from other pastors on our staff. How do I preach this? How do I preach this? Because the temptation is to be nice. The temptation is, as the young guy, is to give you a softball sermon. Just kind of throw it up there. You could spiritually knock it out of the park, and you'll applaud me and say, good job. And we'll be friends. But I can't do that. And the problem is, my conscience is held captive to this book right here. And if I don't preach this book the way it's supposed to be taught, then if my understanding of Scripture, I'll be judged doubly for it. And that terrifies me. And I'm way more afraid of the God of the universe than you. And I, um, I'm not a nervous person. And if you know me, I'm a very expressive person. I love to talk. I'm a talker. It's what I do. Um, but when it's weighty and it's heavy and it's serious, it scares me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage in its entirety before I pray. And my prayer is that you will hear the voice of Christ and not Paul Crandall. My prayer is that you'll hear Jesus' words, which are aggressive, and not my own. And I pray you leave today not thinking, what an arrogant, pompous little pastor we have. But what a fearful and wonderful Savior we have, who is not afraid or timid to speak of the truth, even when it offends us. So let's start with verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, 
you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We have no need. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not like, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing, doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He has, or he was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you can convict me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor him. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anybody keeps my words, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my words, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets? They died? Who do you make yourself to be, or out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. 
So they picked up stones to throw at him. And Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Father, it is a joy and a terror to preach your word. It is a joy to speak of the greatness of Christ. It is a joy to give the gospel that frees us from our sin. It is a joy to give the gospel which cuts the head off the serpent that accuses us. It is a joy to see the gospel liberate people who are slaves to their sin. Is it a joy to give to my fellow brothers and speak the gospel to myself, which gives me a relationship with you? It is a joy. It is a privilege. It is an honor, yet it is terrifying. Father, it is terrifying to hold such a delicate and powerful message in our hands. It is terrifying to think that my personality, my actions, what I do in my home, how I act to my wife, how I treat my children, how I treat my friends, that that can get in the way of the power of the gospel. It is a terrifying thing to see my age as a hurdle. It's a terrifying thing to think that I could scar the message of Jesus Christ. It is a terrifying thing that you have given us the mystery of the gospel to broken vessels. And Father, I pray that you would speak because your servant is weak. And no matter how many hours, how much prayer, how much time, how much preparation has been given, if your spirit does not move, it is all in vain. So, Father, would you speak? Because we wait with anticipation to hear the only one who can break through our hearts of stone. Hear my prayer. Amen. I want you to uh, imagine for a moment that you have a, a headache. Maybe not that bad of a headache, but you have a headache. Enough that it annoys you that you can't go about your everyday life. So you, like me, you go grab some Tylenol. No, I'm not here. I don't get any money from Tylenol for giving that. But you grab some, some, some pain medication. And it's not something great, not Oxycontin or anything like that. You just grab some Tylenol. And now imagine if you were to grab this bottle, maybe from the medicine cabinet. You grab this bottle. It says Tylenol. You turn around, pain reliever, okay. And you, you start reading the side effects. You're like, well, I want to see what this is going to do to me. Imagine if this is what you would read on that bottle. Side effects could include tiredness, loss of appetite, bleeding, constipation, diarrhea, fatigue, hair loss, infection, memory loss, throat pain, nausea, vomiting, nerve damage, pain, infertility, skin damage, swelling, and urinary trouble. You would put that bottle straight back on the shelf. You're not going to take that medicine. Why? Because the side effects are obviously worse than your present symptoms. The side effects are a greater inconvenience. And if you were to take that pill, it would bring more pain in your life. It is way too strong of a side effect list to solve your headache type problem. Taking this medicine would add pain, would add inconvenience. The proposed solution is actually the real problem. The medication is the enemy, not the headache. So you push it away. But this isn't a real scenario we see in life. This isn't a real label we read from a Tylenol bottle. 
It's a simply a humorous antidote, speaking about exaggerated common side effects. But this scenario isn't a complete joke. These are real side effects. In fact, this is the grim reality of thousands of people. The side effects are real, and they've been endured by many, even in our congregation. But not in the hopes of relieving some headache or some petty discomfort. No, these are the frightening and unpleasant effects of chemotherapy. They're, these are the pains of those with the heavy burden of cancer. This list is a description of the hard life of those who seek to beat such a fatal disease. The treatment is radical because the disease is fatal. The treatment is severe because the disease is terminal. The treatment is costly because the disease is deadly. The only reason you seek after such treatment is because the benefits outweigh the cost. In this scenario, the disease is the problem. Cancer is the enemy. And the treatment, though it is costly, though it is devastating, is actually friend. A costly solution is only appropriate when our problem is utterly severe. And in our text here, in John chapter 8, Jesus is presented as a radical solution to a fatal disease. In the first part here in verse 31, we're introduced, who are the hearers of this message? Who are going to be the debaters with Jesus in, in John chapter 8? And it says that these are the ones who've believed in him. They have put some sense of trust, some semblance of faith, whether it be peripheral or not, there is some position that they have given to Jesus Christ that is different than others. These are the ones that have heard his claim, I'm the light of the world. The promised one, the one you're waiting for, you're looking for redemption, I'm right here. And it says they believe in him. But John, the writer of the gospel, doubts this. I believe it's because what is the first thing we see right after he speaks of the Jews' belief? He says this, Jesus says, if. If. There's a sense of doubt. And then Jesus emphasizes, he says, if you abide in my word, you are my true disciple. Jesus doubts their belief. John is not confident that they are true believers. It is quite possible these, these are simply the people who wanted signs and wonders. They wanted bread from heaven. They just wanted Jesus to give them some earthly comfort. So they're waiting to see the miraculous. The reason John highlights this uncertain belief is because the whole thrust of his gospel is about belief. John chapter 20 says this, I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life is in his name. John wants to be clear what true belief is. You see, in our minds sometimes we categorize the world into two groups. Believers, unbelievers. Disciples, non-disciples. These are not the categories, the complete list of categories for John. He has three. Believer, unbeliever, false believer. Disciple, non-disciple, false disciple. And the third category is what John has in mind in chapter 8. And this third group, is the most dangerous of all of them. 
This is the group has shown signs of belief, but truly does not possess true belief. The true danger is not that the outsider will be fooled, that they're believers, but that the individual himself will fool himself, thinking I'm a follower of Christ, when in reality he's not. Thinking I am saved, when in reality he's not. See, a believer has chosen to believe. An unbeliever is certain in his unbelief. But a false believer is unaware and naive to the fact that his faith is but a facade and can do nothing to save his soul. The false believer is completely oblivious to the grim reality of his plight. He therefore does not truly grasp the radical nature of his solution. He doesn't grasp the weight of his disease and its cure. His faith is trivial because his problem in his view is petty. You see, our understanding of our problem is linked to what we believe will solve it. If we have a small problem, it requires a small solution. If we have a big problem, it requires a big solution. The problem and frightening thing is when we see or when we have a large problem and we believe it's small. When it is actually a mountain and we make it something so light, so unimportant, so trivial, that if somebody were to come up to us and said, you need chemotherapy, we would say, I have a headache. I don't need that. And the problem is this. When somebody presents to you the mountain and weight and gravity of your sin, and you see it as something petty, when they give you the solution, you push it away. It's simply too costly, too harmful. We believe our self-delusion. We look for Tylenol when we need chemotherapy. And when we know our doctor prescribes chemotherapy, we reject it as something just too severe. We push away our saving solution because we don't truly understand our disease. And this push is not a trivial one, but a violent one. When the solution is too strong, too costly, too severe, too harmful, we will aggressively and vigorously push it from us. The passage, the big idea in this passage is this. If you don't see Jesus as the solution to your problem, he will become a problem. And just as these three groups are represented in our text, believer, non-believer, false believer, disciple, non-disciple, false disciple, it would be foolish to believe that these groups are not represented in this congregation. And my prayer is that this message from the mouth of Jesus will rip away the curtain of delusion and it will open your eyes not only to the frightening reality of your condition but to the great and marvelous nature of its solution and the cross work of Jesus Christ. You see in verse 32 Jesus comes on the scene starts his conversation says I can make you free. I can give you freedom that you've never had before. And why can Jesus do this? Because he's not like us. He's a son. He's not a slave. 
And he uses his status as a son to make us sons. A slave cannot free a slave, but a son can free a slave. A son can make us sons. And that's what Jesus offers, true freedom. Freedom not to be bound anymore, but to enjoy the blessings of our Father. Because the son remains in the house forever, but a slave will not. He will be pushed out. He will be thrown out. And if we don't allow the son to free us, we will not remain in the house forever. But how do the Jews respond to such a declaration of freedom? How do these hearers respond to such a declaration of freedom? True independence. Not being freed from the chains of slavery. Not saying freedom as you can look at somebody of a different skin color and say we are brothers. That is freedom. But that pales in comparison to the degree of freedom that Jesus Christ is offering right here. The great freedom. You're free from your sin. You're free from Satan. No longer to be bound. And what do they, what do, they do with this? If you look at the text, it's depressing. It's saddening. They don't see it. They respond by saying, Jesus, we don't need such freedom. We don't want that. They say, we've never been enslaved to anybody. Just think about that. The Jews say, we've never been enslaved to anybody. We're not slaves. That's almost humorous. If you know the history of the people of Israel, of the Jews, they have a long-standing history of what? Slavery. They were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves to the Babylonians. They were a slave to the Assyrians. And now they're essentially a slave to the Romans. And yet they're like, we're not slaves. How, do you, how are you so blind to your political predicament? How could that be? But Jesus is not talking about powers. He's not talking about Rome. He's not talking about men. He's not talking about swords or spears. He's not talking about politics. He's trying to point out their spiritual bondage to sin. And they are completely unaware of the heavy chains that shackle so tightly around their souls. They are utterly oblivious to their inescapable spiritual enslavement. They see no chains, no locks, no cuffs. They are blind. Their self-deception has robbed them of the true vision of their reality. But we are very much like them. We have lost the weight and gravity of our sin. We have acclimated ourselves to sin and not sought the aggressive termination of our sin. Jesus says, if this right here, your hand, causes you to sin, remove it, cut it off. For it is better you to experience that pain and agony than to allow sin to lay root in your life. In fact, if it's your eye, impair your vision, make yourself blind, gouge that thing out. That's what he says. And yet what have we done? We play with sin. We flirt with sin. We entertain sin with our eyes and we pet it with our hands. We treat sin as a toy and not the poison that it truly is. We may see sin as a celebration of our wills to be free as human beings, to do as we please. But we are fools 
Because sin is the corruption of our freedom. Sin does not liberate you. Sin enslaves you. We are bound, chained, and shackled to it. Sin dominates us and it damns us. That is our state. It dominates every aspect of who you are. It's not just your actions, it's your very nature. Sin has penetrated every single pore. It has invaded every single crevice of your personality. Sin has laid claim to every segment and corner of our souls. What we have done is we have isolated ourselves from our actions. We make the mistake of seeing sin as only an action, but sin comes from sinful people. We sin because we are sinners. Our problem is not simply the acts we do, it's the people we are. Apart from Christ, you have never lapsed in this condition. Your disease has never ever gone into remission. There has never been a time where you are not a sinner. We are utterly incapable of any semblance and shred of disobedience. Romans 8 says, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it can not. Sin is not a minor infection. It has evaded every single cell, and it disables us from ever doing anything good. In our natural state, to ask us to do something truly righteous in God's sight is like asking a blind man to see or a lame man to walk. It is impossible. We are bound to sin. And it dominates every aspect of who we are. Every choice, every feeling, every motion, every thought. But the true destructive force of our disease is only truly grasped in light of its devastating damnation. We are bound to sin because it damns us. Sin is a cancer to our souls. It weakens us and it makes us frail. It drags us down to utter destruction. No disease in the history of mankind has ever caused or will cause such torment and agony. The first sin is, was the root of decay. Adam's sin was the root of decay, disease, and sickness that we see in this world. But sin's true power lies in death. And not just the ceasing of a heartbeat. Not just the lack of brain activity. No. This death goes beyond blood and bones. And it strikes at our souls. It will utterly destroy us. We experience the pain of sin now in sickness, in suffering, and in sorrow, but its full force will not be felt until our lives are at an end. Our present day pain with sin is like an ember coming from the fire and flying and singeing our clothes. But the future pain of sin is like being thrown in the fire and utterly consumed. Our sin it's what holds us under the wrath of God forever. Our sin is what drags us 
to this end in chains that we cannot break or undo. Our efforts to free ourselves from such bondage are only futile. No amount of human strength or willpower can free us from such a fate. We cannot rewrite our story. It will end in a devastating scene of destruction, punishment, and suffering. Sin will have the last say. And we will suffer worthless and alone forever. Yet Jesus is the solution to this problem. In verse 36, he says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. In verse 51, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you keep my words, you'll never see death. Jesus is the solution to this problem. But as we go down, as we keep reading in this text, as our eyes travel down the page, it doesn't get happier. It gets worse. Because such a declaration of freedom that you can be freed from your sin, what holds you captive, what lays hold of every choice, that freedom, not freedom from a master, not somebody who can tell you what to do with your hands and where to move with your feet. You have a master called sin and it has captivated your mind. It has held captive your heart, your emotions, your desire. Everything is it. You are sins and you are making your disease worse. And yet Christ says that, I can beat that. I can beat that. And yet with such a declaration of freedom, what do we see the most depressing scene, the people of God say, we don't need you. We don't need such freedom. We have Abraham. We're the Jews. We're of Israel. We don't need you. To which Jesus says, your father is not Abraham. It's not God. It's Satan. So when Jesus confronts the Jews with the reality of their bondage to sin and has told them the freedom that he can give, they don't see it. They need no cure because they believe they have no problem. They have no disease. What do they do when Jesus points out their sin? What do they do when Jesus gives them such a fatal diagnosis of a terminal disease? What do they do when he points out their faults? What do they do? They justify themselves. They don't see their, the great freedom that he offers because they can't admit that they have such a severe problem. They justify themselves with their ethnicity, claiming that the lineage of Abraham is their salvation in verse 39. And in verse 42, they use religion to justify themselves, claiming you don't understand God is our father. We have access to him. And in verse 41, again, they seek to morally justify themselves, saying we're not born of sexual immorality, which is an accusation and a point to the reputation of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we're not born like you. You're of sexual immorality, not us. They believe they are greater than Christ. Ethnically, are they right? They are descendants of Abraham. They are a part of the Jewish people. They are a part of the people that God called out. I'm going to save the nations through you. I'm going to bring Messiah through you. I'm going to give revelation, the knowledge, the Old Testament, the books of the law. I'll do miracles, miraculous things in front of you. 
I will be your God, you will be my people, and salvation will come to the nations through you. Are they Israel? Yes. And they say, because we are, we're not unclean, we're not bound to sin. Religiously, we know the history of Jews. They meticulously keep the practices and precepts of the law. Even making new laws over those laws so that even the hints of sin is not found in them. Surely they're not unclean. Surely they're not bound to sin. Morally, they're not illegitimate children like Jesus is. They're better than him. When we, are pay, or when we see the picture of our bondage to sin, what do we do? We justify ourselves. Maybe in the same veins, maybe in the same group, maybe in the same exact way. You don't know who my family is. You don't know who my father is. You don't know how influential my family is in Valley Bible Church. I can claim the heritage of faith and say I have inherited a saving faith. Religiously, I can give you a resume of the things that I've done for this church and all the sins that I've avoided. Morally, Paul, you don't know. When I look across these pews, I know the sin that he's done, and I'm way more superior than he is. We can do that. We do that. But it's vain. It's vanity. It's a delusion. We're not sons because of our last names. We're not sons because of our church attendance. We're not sons because of our good deeds. We are sons because the Son has set us free. Jesus, Jesus is the solution to the problem. And true children of Abraham know that. Verse 56 says, if you were a true son of Abraham, you would rejoice when you saw the freedom that I give in Jesus Christ. You would rejoice at the freedom that I win with the cross. True sons of Abraham have the same faith as Abraham. This faith is what makes the difference. Simply being in the bloodline means nothing. Just as Paul says in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all children of Abraham, not are, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. True sons act like their father. They should and they would rejoice the grace of God and not seek to kill him Jesus is the solution to our problem. Yet what do they do? Yet again they resist it. Yet again they push it away. Yet again they say, we don't need you. As Jesus presents his case more clearly, and as he continues to show them their need, what happens? Their resistance grows even stronger. First they said, we don't need your freedom. Then they say, we could justify ourselves. Ethnically, religiously, morally, we're better. We don't need this. You can't accuse us of such guilt. In fact, Jesus, you are morally at fault. We know your history. We know you have no father. And yet as their stance grows stronger, so does that of Christ. Because he will not let them go. He will not let them be free of acknowledging the fact that of their sinful and needy state. He must wake them up. They must see their bondage to sin. They must realize their great need of a Savior. And Christ, with a heart of compassion, is seeking to shake them and wake them up to their true state. 
Christ tries harder with more conviction, more aggression to show them the false hope of their religion. In his words, he seeks to shake them free of these delusions of grandeur, these self-aggrandizing dreams. They are sleepwalking themselves into a pit. And Jesus wishes to shake them. And when the first shake does not work, he shakes them again. And he shakes them again out of compassion, out of love. And what Jesus does is he attacks at the very heart of their argument, the connection to Abraham. And what Jesus says is, you are not a son of Abraham. You're not a son of God. You may have history, but you do not know him. You may have a book, but he is not your God. In fact, you are a son of the devil. Jesus argues that they act exactly like their father. In verse 44, Satan is described as what? A murderer. In verse 37, the Jews are described as murderers seeking to kill Jesus Christ. In verse 44, Jesus, or sorry, Satan is called a liar, the father of lies, and there's no truth in him. And in verse 40, what does it say? The Jews are set against truth. Jesus is making the argument, you act exactly like your father, the devil. This is a great and heavy insult to Jewish people because they pride themselves in their heritage. They pride themselves in being connected to the patriarch of patriarchs, Abraham. And not only does Jesus take away that connection, he replaces their healer, hero with a villain. He says, you thought you were on his side, but you are working towards his antithesis. You are working towards the true antagonist of the faith. You are on the side of Satan. You are serving the villain. And Jesus doesn't say this to insult them. He says it to inform them. This is the truth. Your father is the devil. This is the truth. Your father is the devil. 1 John chapter 3 says in verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. In verse 10, it says, this is the evidence who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. We, apart from Christ, are children of the devil, and we act like our true father. According to Ephesians 2, we not only follow him, we not only copy him, but we are influenced by him. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we were dead in our sins and transgressions, in which we walked, following the course of the world, following, this is copying, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, that's influence in the sons of disobedience. Before my relationship with Christ, Satan's power worked inside of me. My sinful nature was excited and manipulated by my satanic master. And he was not working to bring me joy, but to destroy me, to ruin me. His aim was my destruction. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, this is speaking of Jesus coming down. So what Jesus has done. He himself likewise partook of the same thing. Jesus became man. That through 
death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery apart from Christ. We are Satan's slaves, and he uses the fear of death to keep those chains around our necks. Moreover, he blinds us to the gospel, to the one thing that can free us from our enslavement. We are bound in chains in the dungeon of our lives that sin has created, with Satan as our master, and the one time there's a hope, a glimpse of light, maybe freedom is out there. What does he do? He snuffs it out. He takes it away. He seeks to keep you bound in the chains you've created for yourself. 2 Corinthians 4 says, in this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ in the image of God. When Jesus describes the parable of the soils and said that the gospel is like a seed that is cast out, Satan is described as a bird who flies down and snatches the seed of the gospel away so it will not take root. He is real. And if you are not in Christ, he is your father. And he is not a loving one. He does not want you, he does not want to be your friend. He wants to feast on you. He wants to ruin you. He wants to destroy you. He delights in seeing you in pain and agony. He wishes to consume your soul. Peter says he's like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And yet we have domesticated this man, this demon. We have domesticated this fallen angel. We've declawed him, defanged him. We've made him a house pet. We've believed his disguise and we've allowed him in our lives. And he will destroy you. How great is our bondage. How heavy the weight of our sin that pulls us down. Our condition, which is pulled by demonic forces to pursue more damning sin with each new temptation. Who can free us from such a fate? Who can deliver us from such a horrendous master? Christ, Christ, Christ. He will free you and free you indeed. He can break your chains, he can heal your wounds, he can change your heart, give you a new nature, and he can crush the head of your old master. That's what Jesus Christ does. And he is the solution. And he declares his freedom to you. He declares his freedom in this text. He says, I am the solution to your problem. And you clap with hope, anticipation that maybe conversion is on the eve of happening, but it is not. Jesus clearly, and with conviction and compassion, says, I can free you from your sin and from Satan. Galatians says he becomes a curse for our sake. If you trust in the cross of Christ, you will have freedom but the Jews don't see it. Yet again in our text, they don't see it. But their blindness turns to violence. 
They seek to stone Jesus because Jesus has a demon. In their mind, he has said, I'm greater than Abraham. I'm equal to God. He must be eliminated. Jesus is offering them freedom, true freedom, real freedom from the worst master and the worst condition. And all they can do is sling insults at him. All they can do is charge him with blasphemy. They call him a Samaritan, which basically means this. You are a half-breed heretic. Your lineage, your heritage, your bloodline is all messed up, and your thoughts are as well. They turn the tables on Jesus. Jesus said, your father was the devil, and they look at Jesus and say, no, you're the devil. You're the furthest thing from God. And yet, amongst all of this, such heated accusations, such finger-pointing from these people who he came to save, and all they want to do is kill him, Look what Christ does in verse 51. He still gives them hope. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anybody keeps my words, he'll never see death. Even though you would strike against me as your enemy, I'm your creator, I'm your redeemer, and you're looking to destroy me, I will still give you freedom. The grace that I give is not conditional on your behavior, despite all these accusations, he gives them love. In this hostile and heated debate, Jesus makes one of the most clearest statements about who he is, about his deity. Right before they pick up stones to hurl at his head, he says that he is God. And Jesus says this by saying he's better than Abraham. He says, I'm better than Abraham because I'm before Abraham. Before Abraham ever came on the scene, I was there. And he says this, but he says it in a really peculiar way. If you look at verse 38, and you are any sense a student of English grammar, you would pick this up. Jesus would get an F in a grammar class. Well, in this statement. I might rescind that comment and take that back. Sorry, Lord. Verse 58. You get an A in my book. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. That's not right. This wrong conjugation of the verb should be past tense. He should have said, before Abraham was, I was. But Jesus is doing something very intentional here. Moses, when he asked for God's name in Exodus chapter 3, God said, my name is Yahweh, which means I am. Jesus here says, ego I me, which means in Greek, I am. Jesus is not confusing his tenses. He's making a declaration of his divinity with clarity. And at the clearest revelation of who Jesus is, the reaction is the most vicious. Let's kill him. Let's kill him. Let's take stones, throw them at his body until he bleeds and breathes no more. You see, Jesus is the solution to our problem. But if we don't see Jesus as the solution to our problem, he becomes our problem. This is very clear even today. If we don't see Jesus as the solution to our problem, he becomes our problem. If you've heard the statement, a loving God doesn't send people to hell. What has happened there? These people that hold this position have been presented with the God of the Bible, the God of justice, the God who sends people to hell, and they don't like it. They're offended by it. So what do they do? That God is a problem. And my position is different. 
But this church is inevitable. The gospel is offensive. You cannot take away the offense of the cross. It's impossible. It's impossible. 2 Corinthians 1 says this, the Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And what is the outcome? We preach Christ crucified. We give the cross. And what is it? A stumbling block to the Jews. Folly to the Gentiles. We cannot remove the offense of the cross. Why? Because the cross says this, you are weak, you are helpless, you are hopeless, you are bound to sin, you're a slave to the devil, you are bound to hell. That is offensive. That is not a compliment. But I pray that you will see past the offense and you will see that it's actually the true diagnosis of who you are. This is who we are apart from Christ. We are in dire need. So I pray you will come to a Savior. I pray that you will trust in the cross as the only way to receive God's forgiveness. Let the Son set you free. But if you are a Christian in this room, you are a believer. This message is still for you. The big idea is, if Christ is not the solution to our problem, then he becomes a problem. What can this mean for you if you've already accepted Christ's forgiveness through the cross work, through faith in it, trusting in it, turning from your sin? What does it mean for you? It means this, you cannot remove the offense of the cross. You can, not that we seek to be offensive, but you can't remove the cross work. You can't tell the story of the love of God in the cross of Christ without first starting with sin. We cannot wiggle around it, and we cannot avoid it. When you tell somebody the gospel, you're telling them you have a self-inflicted disease that's destroying you. Don't be surprised if they get a little upset. And whatever you do, do not let the offense of the cross stop you from sharing it. Because that is a sign of of embarrassment. It's a sign of a lack of compassion. So take the risk. You will lose friends. You will lose family members. The offense of the Christ will turn people away. But you can see God rescue, redeem those that you talk to. Now it is a heavy burden to be a pastor, to preach. Why? Because the offense of the cross is very real. Now, I can entertain you. I can stand on stage and spiritually juggle some principles for you to help out your communication skills with your wife. I can try to help you juggle and make a formula of spiritual principles so your stock market portfolio will be more successful. I can do those things and send you straight to hell with them. I can pamper you, cater you, give you things that are self-help books. I can give you that, but that gives you nothing. And yet we forget this when we're dealing with our friends. Your friendship will not save them. Your idle conversation will not save them. Your acts of charity will not save them. Your postcards, your Christmas cards will not save them. Use that friendship, what? For the gospel. And you will lose them. I guarantee it. The gospel, the offense of the cross cannot be removed. It cannot. You cannot make it easy. You cannot. Take the risk. And it hurts. It hurts when you lose a relationship that you have prized for years. It hurts. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that I understand this. I'm not saying that I fully practice this. 
this is the burden of what I do. This is the burden of what we do as a church. This is the burden of what you do as a Christian. You will experience ties being broken because of the offense of the cross. But I cannot get around this conclusion. You cannot remove it. You cannot. You cannot remove the offense of the cross. The cross is offensive, and when we share it truly and faithfully, there are only two real responses, offense or acceptance. Either Jesus is a demon or he is divine. Either you need him or you don't want anything to do with him. When Christ is truly revealed and the veil is off, those are the only responses. And if we are in our sin, in our nature, bound to Satan, bound to our desires, do you know what we do when we're presented with God? Do you know what would happen if God came down in your sinful state? What your response would be? You would nail him to a cross. You would crucify him. Let me destroy him. That's what we would do. Let us not pretend that in our nature that we are friends of God. We are foes. We are enemies. And we are against him. But when he regenerates us, breathes new life in us, then he becomes friend. But this is the hard part of what we do. We have to tell people their condition. And you may see a stone picked up against you. Just like we have here with Christ. Jesus Christ is the solution to our problem. But if we don't see it, he becomes the problem. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray more than anything, more than anything, that what is seen on stage isn't an arrogant young preacher with high blood pressure. Father, I pray what would be seen would be the greatness of the gospel, which is not made great until we see the devastating and dire situation that we're in. Freedom doesn't look that free when we don't know the brutal nature of our master. When we don't know that he chooses and wishes to bind us forever. But we have freedom in Christ. So Father, give us the courage to speak a message with love and compassion, but with one offense, the cross of Jesus Christ. You're my prayer. Amen.